broadcasting from an undisclosed location. From a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. Isn't it a great feeling to get someone onto their first animal? Only a couple of nights ago, went out with one of my very, very good friends. He's been hunting a long time, hasn't had a whole lot of success. Took him out, got him onto that first animal. And to see the adrenaline and the excitement and the, it's not sort of relief, but the finally, finally did it in him was amazing. And we drove an awful long way to get to a spot I was fairly confident in and thankfully it paid off. And to me, that's all about passing on that knowledge. Not that I'm the guru by any means. In fact, I sit here getting humbled most weeks by the amazing amount of knowledge that the people I talk to have. And uh, anyway, it's awesome to see him get out there, get something. It's in at the butcher right now, getting sorted out, and he's going to be able to put food on the table. And that's the most important thing, that, that sense of achievement, that working hard and getting somewhere. My challenge to you is get someone out there. Get someone out there that is interested in hunting, hasn't hunted before, out there succeeding. That's your job. That's my challenge to you. Generate some success, and it's got to be good for our sport. Anyone that reads NZ Outdoor Hunting Magazine, I harp on about this kind of stuff. Good image for our sport or our craft, depending on how you want to view it. And so I challenge you to do that. Be good for our sport, be great for our craft, and get someone into the hills. You may have noticed this week's show is airing a couple of days early, and the reason for that is it's Waitangi weekend. So joined by phone, I have Marama Fox. She's the co-leader of the Māori Party, and we're going to just touch on some issues that affect people that are hunting and also people in the outdoors in general. How are you, Marama? I'm great, thank you. I'm in the sunny Hawke's Bay right now. Um, just came back from Waitangi, uh, not staying on for the actual day because yeah. um, I'm going to be performing kapahaka. Oh, very cool. Now, <laughs> first of all, Marama, we have a lot of visitors or a lot of listeners, I should say, that listen to the show from overseas. Can you just quickly explain to them what the treaty is? Sure. So the Treaty of Waitangi was an agreement between two groups of people, um, Māori who had five years previous declared themselves a sovereign nation and um, the British um, representative of Queen Victoria of the time uh, who signed an agreement that they would share the land. Um, The agreement that the Māori signed uh, was in Te Reo Māori mostly and that travelled around the country. 500 different chiefs from different areas signed that agreement and uh, on the day in Waitangi where it was signed um, there were about 50, 56 Māori chiefs who signed the Māori and English versions. Um, So over the years where conflict has arisen is in a disagreement between the interpretation of the English version to what the Māori version is. And so hence we get um, this ongoing sort of uh, discussion and dialogue about um, rights and obligations and did Māori cede sovereignty to the Queen or not? Māori will mm-hmm. say no, they didn't. Um, and uh, the English version clearly says they did, but the Māori version actually doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, a, it's something that comes up over and over again. Um, but I think the best way forward is that we uh, recognise the Indigenous 
uh, place of Māori in New Zealand and that we sit in a partnership arrangement with the government um, and uh, that has uh, seen uh, co-management of natural resources like rivers, forests and so forth mm. um, and hence we have this ongoing dialogue and there'll be a few more to come over the years I'm sure. Now Marama, first, what, what does the treaty mean for you personally? Oh, listen, you know what? The treaty for me is a recognition of our duality of nationhood. Now, people say we should be um, bicultural um, before we can be multicultural and recognise our moral obligation to the Indigenous people of this country um, and where they fit and then all other cultures that come to it. Um, And so for me, actually, it's about nation building. It's the birthplace of our nation at Waitangi. Um, It is the original founding document of our country that declares us a nation of partnership. And so I I celebrate in that because it recognises the customs of our people, their rights um, and their taonga, all of their natural resources that they were guaranteed. Uh, But it also recognises that we want to share that with non-Māori on our lands and that we have a reciprocal relationship of um, shared knowledge shared technology and um, shared cultural values. I just want to touch very quickly on that and then we'll get on to the the sort of the gritty part of the interview. But you talk about that, that, uh, how do I put it, the the shared side of things. Do you think for a lot of New Zealanders it is there's something going on up at Waitangi and for me it's a day off? You know, and and I'm I'm sick of hearing it. That's not me. Is that the attitude a lot of people have? Well, I mean, that that is an attitude in New Zealand, um, but that is an attitude that comes from ignorance, I think, largely, mm-hmm. where people in our country, we don't teach um, very well in our curriculum, in our schools, um, the history of our own nation. We don't teach uh, the uh, Treaty of Waitangi and, and pre-European uh, Māori history or even post-European Māori history. We have a, a Eurocised version of our our history, uh, where for years it was claimed that Cook discovered New Zealand. Um, Māori people laugh at that because he discovered it with us sitting on it. So, in (laughs) fact, we have our own discoverers. Um, Those types of things uh, is where we come into um, this dialogue, disagreement, I guess. But actually, for me, it's about unveiling our shared history, having an appreciation for that, and then realise that actually over time, Māori have been disenfranchised from that history. Um, They've been alienated from their own culture and have deliberately um, been so through legislation that has purposefully tried to assimilate them into a party culture. And in fact, just one little quote that I found um, when researching native schools in New Zealand, Mm. in Parliament, they debated whether to exterminate the natives or to civilise them. And if they were to civilise them, they needed to do do so through a language that was more conducive to human thought. Now, that's a direct quote from the parliamentarians of the day when they adopted Mm. the Native Land, uh, sorry, the Native Schools Act, which outlawed Māori language, Māori culture being taught in schools, and it went one step further. It said that Māori were only to be taught labouring, cooking, cleaning and nursemaiding uh, because that's all that they were capable of learning. And so from for 100 years, that piece of law stayed in place, which meant that actually Māori were largely disenfranchised. Mm. Pākehā were not taught or understood Māori 
worldview or perspectives. And so we have this um, an imbalance of um, Māori in our own country, not knowing our culture, not knowing our, our sacred places, not understanding our own tikanga. And now we have this revival of Māori knowledge um, through, his, through research, through tribunal planes, uh, through all of this um, rediscovery of language uh, and therefore our stories of our land and our whenua that is fantastic mm. um, but it, some non-Māori in our country feel threatened by that um, because there is an irrational fear I believe that if we give and recognise Māori rights as promised under the treaty that they might abuse those rights in withholding resources from non-Māori mm. uh, and I think, you know, that's an irrational fear because the fear stems from the jingos. If we give them uh, this land or, or, or this rights who oversee this land, that they'll do to us what we did to them and keep us from it. So, we're, And we're going to <laughs> get into that be. a little bit more as this interview goes on. Sure. But I want to just touch, can you explain if at all, or the, if at all, the treaty is relevant to hunters in general or people that use the outdoors maybe? Yeah, absolutely. I think the treaty is relevant to all New Zealanders because it's a recognition of something like um, kaitiakitanga or the, um, the responsibility that Māori have or it within their culture of looking after the land. If we believe that we come from Papatūnuku as our earth mother through direct lineage, born of the earth, born of Sky Father to um, where we are now, uh, if you hold to those beliefs, then we can't do anything that um, damages our ancestral mother, which is Mother Earth. So uh, that kaitiakitanga is our responsibility to look after um, those resources. So, for example, in Wairarapa, Wairarapa Moana is the lake there. We used to take 20 tonne of eel um, out of Wairarapa Moana every second year. But in the off year, we took nothing. And that was a sustainable, uh, every biannual um, harvest of tuna when it was running. Uh, it used to run through Wairarapamwana and back out to sea off to Tonga where they would um, spawn and then come back as glass eels back up the rivers through uh, the same pathway, the migratory pathway. So that kaitiakitanga where sometimes you can you can harvest um, the resources but other times you leave them um, that is a natural way of protecting the resources of uh, our ancestors or mother earth uh, that we hold dear to now hunters would understand that very much you, yeah. you know yeah absolutely they'd recognize that you, gee, you can't overfish you can't overhunt an area or there'd be nothing left mm -hmm. you can't just go out and, and slaughter everything every animal you see and go great great hunt guys you know you take what you need and you leave for tomorrow something for our children and for um our descendants mm. now Look, as hunters hunters go, and and I do I do a lot of hunting, and I have to say a lot of the the dock blocks or the public land, or the private even the private land I'm allowed onto skirts what we would term in air brackets as Maori land. You know, yes. do you think that that term in itself, because we use it, that's Maori land, we can't go there, uh, is is doing harm? Is that the right term I should be using, or should I just be saying that's private land? 
How, how well, should I be thinking about that land? No, well, I mean, it does harm if you think of it in a, in a deficit way. Mm. You know, I think of Māori land in an asset way. I go, that's Māori land, and I am filled and inspired by by uttering those words. Mm. Um, so I think that's a difference in worldview. And um, if if you have a relationship, and Māori, see, the thing with Māori is we're all about relationships. We have a relationship with the youth. We have a relationship with each other. The whole pōhiri process when we welcome you onto a marae mm. is about removing barriers and greeting you as equals. Um, and so... Uh, all the barriers go out the window. We hungi. Hungi is a sharing of breath between um, the two partners. And you touch foreheads to share thoughts. You touch noses to share breath and you become one. And then we build a relationship. Now, if um, people take the time to build relationships with Māori landowners, you'll find Māori are great hunters too. They love hunting. Oh, absolutely. Um, mm. That's right. And as long as we uh, respect each other and have an agreement about how we then um, utilise the land and its resources, um, observing maybe uh, sites of significance, um, cultural uh, places that we ask not to go to, then we're, we're fine. And yeah. I think where that dialogue happens and where those relationships are grown and fostered, I don't think there are issues with calling it Māori land. Hmm. So, look, that sounds fantastic. And as you know, mm. hunting is strong common ground. It bridges age, sex, religion, and yeah. it absolutely bridges race. Yes. Now, there's a, there's a lot of land out there that we call, and, and I'm a European hunter, Maori yes. land, that I don't have access to, and I don't have the opportunity to have permit, permitted access to it. Do you think that more permitted access could do exactly the great things that you've just talked about? Um, listen, I think that is part of an ongoing dialogue. So we have been negotiating with the government about the RMA. Hmm. RMA will, um, we hope, once it's passed, um, require regional councils, local councils, to have iwi participation agreements, which basically says we're going to sit down with our local iwi, we're going to talk about the region as we understand it and how we want to use utilise that region respect the areas we want to respect and do things like consents, hmm. possibly permits, and come to an agreement about those things at the front end, not the back end. So I think actually there is opportunity for exactly uh, the thing you're talking about to happen. Now, um, you know, in the same way that you say this is my land and I can't go there, um, my mother, for example, who our family forever, our stories go right back into uh, the Tanifa time, uh, fished out at a certain place on the coast. Um, but when she went to go there down a paper road to the coast on the beach, she's confronted by a farmer with a shotgun over his arm saying, you need to leave this place. She just looked at him and said, well, you need to be prepared to use that gun. I'm not going anywhere. Um, because the, the access, as you talk about, is a mutual thing. And Agreed. what we have seen in um, in recent years is that access has been limited to Māori across privately owned farmland. Um, but when we go to, we might have landlocked land inside that farm uh, that the farmer uses as his own because we don't fence it it's, it might be five acres inside 50 acres yeah. um so the farmer just uses it as part of his farm 
when we do manage to go there after being locked out of the farm, we see the farmer has opened the place to all of his friends. They've put a batch on that land, which is supposed to be our land, but because it's inside his farm, we really have no access and no um, way of getting to it for the purposes that we want to use it for. So actually, it goes both ways. Uh, absolutely, that it does. Access, I completely yeah. agree. Mm. So I think it's if we build ongoing dialogue with our local regional councils and iwi, um, with all stakeholders and participants able to participate in that conversation, then I think that's what partnership is. That's what co-management is. And that's not something to be afraid of. I think that's something to be celebrated. We come to an understanding and then we um, ensure that we utilise and protect our whenua in the best way for all of us. And... Something I personally celebrate is the Tūruwera Act and the access to the Tūruweras, in my view, that is turning out to be a good example about how to foster good race relations. Yes. In fact, reports are from from hunters, the hunting is getting better in there because the management is probably probably more sustainable. I don't know if it's better or worse. I I don't know that for sure myself. Um, But are there any other future or are there any future plans to have well, I mean, models like that, that? Well, absolutely. That is held up as, as a great model of co-management of an area where Māori have a larger say. And through that larger say, we also now see um, increased, uh, you know, um, uh, increased life for hunting, Mm. Uh, there are more pigs or there are more birds or there are more fish in the areas where Māori have a greater say around the protection and the management of that area. Uh, And so that's got to be good for all of us. But the understanding that everybody comes to is that actually if for a couple of weeks there's been an accident or we find that there's um, a certain species that are suffering, we might put a rahui on an area um, in order to help that area revitalise itself, which Arahui is a, um, a temporary ban on on activities in a certain place. So if, for example, on the coast, if somebody drowns um, in a seafood gathering area, quite often there'll be Arahui placed on that area for any collection of seafood um, for a period of time, and that might be um, a couple of weeks. And in some cases I've heard for up to a month um, and that's to give respect to the person who's passed away, but also to ensure that the area is cleansed um, in in a Māori worldview um, from harm. So people may not understand that, but if we if we have a dialogue, if we talk to one another, if we have some understanding about it, you will see stocks replenish themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know more about fishing than I do about hunting. My husband <laughs> yeah, has yeah. caught a few pigs in his time and a few deer that he brings home and stocks our freezer with. Mm. I, I just want to ask, and this, unfortunately, I, I didn't sort of mention this question, but do you think that, because the, the reason we hunt or the reason most New Zealanders hunt, or, and that's of any background and any uh, ethnic background for sure, is, mm. is to put food on the table. Absolutely, and, and I think that the passing of, or the the ability to do that, is something that I personally hold very dear, and mm. and I know my friends that that are of other races hold very dear to them. Do you think that's mm. a, a right that that New Zealanders 
need to keep fighting for? Because in lots of countries that's getting restricted. And is there an opportunity for the treaty to make sure that right stays in place for all of us? Yeah, I absolutely think that is um, a right um, guaranteed under the treaty for Māori. Uh, but that doesn't see this is where uh, I believe that what's good for Māori is good for all of New Zealand because if we fight um, for uh, the rights of Māori to be upheld and respected well then that automatically has um, a flow-on effect to non-Māori so if we fight for um, guaranteed rights of our tonga our fish our environment uh, to be protected then access to that is merely a conversation but the area can then be protected to a point where uh, I would I would say Māori should never and will never be denied the right to hunt mm. and gather food because those are rights guaranteed under the treaty but that doesn't mean it will only be for Māori I think what that means for me is that for a specific area, we can determine that that will be the case and then access to all people, like the Uruweta, then has that flow-on effect. So we fight for it under Māori rights, but that's a value-add to the whole of New Zealand for all of us to enjoy. I suppose what I was getting to there, Marama, is that if, if the treaty was a, a partnership document, myself as a hunter, you know, my, my ancestors also were involved in signing that. Yep. If my rights as a New Zealander were infringed on or that that hunting was going to be restricted or changed and this is very much on docker state maybe is there mm-hmm. any opportunities for me as a european new zealander to use the treaty from for my ends does you, do you kind of get well, where I mean, i'm going with tre- that yeah, yeah absolutely i understand what you're saying so the treaty is a partnership agreement mm-hmm. um it clearly articulates the rights guaranteed to maori mm-hmm. um uh, so that they will, wouldn't um lose any of the things that they currently enjoyed at the time of the signing. And what it offers to non-Māori is the ability to come and live in our land and manage your people. So uh, let me just take you back a little bit. So when the treaty was signed, this is my understanding, uh, and through a bit of research and and conversations that I've had for many years now, uh, that Māori were in a place of of significant power. There were about 150,000 Māori up at Waitangi was the most populous area um, in New Zealand. There were a couple of thousand non-Māori living here, and they were pretty unruly at the time, whalers, uh, sailors, fishermen, um, pretty much a few uh, edgy settlers who had come over. But I like that, much, edgy settlers. That's a fantastic well, word. They, they would have been, wouldn't they? To, <laughs> to take yourself to the other side of the world and yeah. branch out into unknown territory, you would have been a bit of an adventurer. Oh, no, I just I like that word. That, that I've, I've, I've written that down. I'm <laughs> edgy settlers. Edgy it's settlers. my word. I'm going to own it. But, um, <laughs> but so if you imagine that that's the environment that we lived in, what I believe Māori signed up to is an agreement with the Crown. They saw the technology, uh, the guns, the, the um, hammers, nails, this metal technology that Māori didn't have. We were still stone age-ish yeah. people. But we were also entrepreneurs. We, we travelled and um, traversed the Pacific to sell our wares um, or trade our wares across the islands over to Australia, up into the Americas, so we're told. Um, and so uh, we saw the opportunities of having um, this new race of people bring their technology into our country. But please, can you look after them? So the agreement is we guarantee you everything that you have that that won't be 
disturbed, uh, we would like to have kawanatanga or governorship in the land. Um, Māori, I believe, perceive that as governorship over their own people. So what that means then is under the law, as long as um, uh, the law is a, is articulated and legislated for fairly, then Māori can enjoy their rights and non-Māori can as well. Mm. I don't think they are mutually exclusive and actually inside the treaty. That's the guarantee that we live together in partnership. Um, but see, the difficulty comes when Māori are left landless virtually like we own less than one oh actually sorry less than five percent of the land in Aotearoa now is in Māori hands mm. less than five percent um in Wairarapa where we think in 1840 we owned a hundred percent of the land we now own less than one percent so actually um Māori rights have been impinged upon for a generation or multiple generations of time now uh, and so when we fight for Māori rights, it's because our rights have been largely extinguished in the areas that we live, where non-Māori rights under government law have not. Yep. So while we can we can talk about the treaty upholding both um, sides of this partnership, it's the balance is already skewed yep. largely in one way. So when we fight for Māori rights, we're trying to sort of get some equilibrium and restore balance to that. But that doesn't mean that extinguishes your right. Yep. It just means we'd like to re realise Māori rights as well. And that, that's a beautiful way of putting that too, Marama. Thank you. And the other thing that, that happens, and there's, I, I don't have heaps of examples of this, but there are a few floating around. And it's one yep. of, I think, the great fear that a lot of hunters have. Recently, my access was restricted by onto a dock estate on a, on a public... There, there was no. There was uh, upon a vis- investigation. There was no reason for my access to be restricted, and this turned mm. out to be a small. And I'll put in little brackets, but a splinter group of people that were just causing trouble. They had no way. They were not yep. acting on any sort of authority. Um, they That's had no right. right to to deny my access. But I, I can tell you what. There was a lot of people because it was not. It wasn't just me that was affected. There was a lot of people that were very very angry and well more upset about this. Yeah. When this happens, what are people? What should they do? Uh, look, I think people need to go back through the um, through uh, the courts, back through to the authorities um, to have it sorted out. Because what I don't ever want to see is um, sort of vigilante action mm. um, happening where where these things prop up. And you know, um, uh, this is a little bit about. Uh, if if this was a mighty group, I'm not sure that it was, but uh, if it was a mighty group that have said, no, nah, that's it, we're over this, it's because they act out of frustration. They act out of frustration of having been, um, having had their rights extinguished and ignored for, you know, 175 years. So if they're acting in that way, then we need to go back and talk with them about that, have those dialogue, have the discussions, but I would definitely go back through um, the right channels, yeah. talk to iwi leaders, go and, and, go I was and approach. Really, I was really fortunate enough, Marama, to have access to that. Um, but yeah. but a lot of people don't know where to start. Yes. But that but see, I mean, they're acting out of a out of ignorance, if I can I mean to let's be blunt. That people don't know how to approach Māori because they don't understand Māori world. Māori have lived in a Pākehā world 
forever yeah, and still point. don't know how <laughs> and still don't know how sometimes to approach it, it in the parking world so actually across a number of areas that is our both of our trouble but we have look we have largely been successfully colonised and assimilated into a Pākehā world, and I know how to operate fine in the Pākehā world, but I also know how to operate in the Māori world. And I think that um, more of us as New Zealanders, um, if we were to embrace our duality of nationhood, recognising our moral obligation to our Indigenous people, then we would grow our understanding, um, take the time to, and the effort to learn uh, how to work and um, talk, build a relationship in a Māori world way, world view. And then that's the pathway to having those conversations. And, and do you think, and this is something I personally would like to see, that eventually that will create a new normal? That there's Absolutely. That those things Absolutely. will come together. There's a new well, great thing you know, coming. I, listen, I talk about Māori language being um, a core subject in our schools. I don't just say that for the revitalization of the language. I say that because I truly believe that if it was a normality in our country to be bilingual, equally versed in um, English and Māori, we would have and grow a greater understanding of each other naturally because you can't learn the language without its culture and its custom. And therefore, we would grow um, a, a greater understanding, um, a greater uh, inclusive society, and we would be proud and talk about Māori land in an asset way, talk about uh, Māori cultural um, sort of customs impacting on us as a nation in a asset way, and we would be proud to adopt it rather than just fluff and fodder when we want to play um, Australia in an all-black test. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, you've brought up a really good point a couple of times, and that is the passing on of knowledge. Now, mm. I've, I've been very fortunate in situations where I've managed to be hunting with people that have hunted that land for generations. And, yep. and that's both European and, 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 and Maori yep. ascent, you know, descent people. And the knowledge is huge. And I've always found that the, the outdoors is a fantastic backdrop for passing on knowledge. That's why I'm a scout leader, for example. You know, getting yeah. youth into the outdoors is a fantastic way to pass on knowledge. Yes. And do you think that there's opportunity for a formal program? And I know I'd be there with bells on if there were a chance for for Māori to pass on that knowledge and that great stuff, that, that understanding, using the outdoors yeah. as a backdrop. Is there any way? And, and there are examples like Kaiwahu on the, the Napier Taupo Road that yep. I think are starting to do this. Um, but is there is there a Absolutely. way we could do this Look, better? I, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that just be a perfect example of where Kaupapa Māori knowledge has benefit and value to our nation? Uh, where we do things in a Māori way, and that's okay. Um, when we when we learn about how to look after and and uh, eat from the bush, um, harvest from the bush, uh, hunt from the bush. I mean, we were hunters and gatherers. A lot of people, um, you know, say we were once we were warriors. We actually once we were hunters and gatherers. Yep. Um, that's largely how we lived. And so that would be fantastic. We also need to realise that in many many places, in fact. There are very few places now that still hold that knowledge. Our people have been urbanised. Our people have been alienated from their culture. And we call that cultural genocide. And so for us, we're trying to reclaim that ourselves. Uh, and then where we have done that successfully 
we can then open that up to more people. So things like rongoa, um, and natural healing medicines from our native New Zealand plants, mm. all of those types of things um, are starting to have this renaissance now. Uh, you can get kawakawa cream. You can. My mother, you know, when I got had a cut on my hand in the garden, she grabbed a bit of flax. She rubbed the um, the, uh, the gum that comes out of the base of the flax across it, and it caused an immediate um, steal across the cut. I was like, oh, my goodness, hello. Welcome <laughs> to this little piece of knowledge that I had no, no uh, didn't understand. And so I think, you know, absolutely, I think that would be an amazing place for us to get to as a nation, which is really acknowledging that uh, traditional Māori knowledge has value in our nation and will add to, not take away from, um, our nationhood and our, our nation building. And I, I honestly think that if that could happen, there's an opportunity for traditional knowledge to pass in both directions as well. Yes. Um, well, you know I have a term for that. I call that ambicultural, okay. where we become ambidextrous in each other's knowledge, ambidextrous mm. in each other's culture, is an ambicultural rather than bicultural where we adopt the things of each other's culture um, and add them to our own to enhance and um, grow uh, the value of each other. So let's. So, so, <laughs> do you think there's there's an opportunity for this? Is there anything in the works you know of? Because I think it happens a little bit ad hoc around the place. I don't. It's it, organic. It yeah, yeah, <laughs> organically. That's a better word. Do yes. Do you think that there's an opportunity for a formal program? And you're certainly in a position to to make this happen where, yeah. where that could be that could be adopted because I, I, that's something I'd personally get very excited about. Wouldn't it be great if we developed our own scouting program that was born out of a New Zealand mm. way of doing things around a, a duality of nationhood and, and traditional knowledge informing that program? I mean, I'd love to be able to sponsor something like that um, through Parliament, but actually it doesn't take an act of Parliament to do that. We could just do that. Mm. Um, and many, I mean, there are places sort of doing that now, as you've pointed out, but we could formalise it through school education and all those sorts of things. But um, <laughs> Māori start to get a little bit precious about their knowledge mm. when they can grow it organically. And it's because it's been ripped away from them, because they've yeah. had to search and hunt to find it again and to and to renew it within themselves so um they do get a bit a bit a bit precious about it but i think oh don't worry hunters do too getting yeah, well, getting exactly information right. out of our hunters like <laughs> blood from all the your stone. Secrets away. yeah that's right oh where were you hunting oh somewhere in the oh, my uh, was, yeah. <laughs> i could tell you but then i'd have to kill you <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly right well i think i think what we've got to is a point where I have a better understanding, and I'm hoping that our audience has a better understanding. Um, and, and there wasn't any face palms in that interview at all. So, uh, thank you, uh, Marama. You've been a, a you've, you've been an, an enlightening. You've enlightened me in this interview. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate the opportunity to have these conversations with um, uh, with new audiences. Uh, I've been invited to a number of new audiences uh, since coming into Parliament and have been surprised at how well um, they've met this uh, the way in which I try to articulate the treaty and what does that mean in actual terms for us. And if we can manage to get a program off the ground 
that celebrates um, our duality of nationhood with with non-Māori knowledge of hunting and fishing and Māori traditional knowledge of hunting and fishing. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. I just think that that is value-add to our country and the way I want to see our future grow. And, and definitely using the outdoors as that backdrop because that's where oh, that's where yes. real learning happens, I think. Yeah. Returning to Papatunaku. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Marama. You've been awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Remember, you can win that great prize with NZ Outdoor Hunting Magazine. All you've got to do is like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. Yes, we've got Instagram now, even Twitter. And I'm not very good at Twitter at the moment, but it is there. Find us on Twitter, The Hunting Show. Email us, info at thehuntingshow.co.nz. I love hearing from you. I like your feedback, and I hope that interview was good. Guys, be careful out there, and good hunting. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him, and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics.